So how's it going? Oh, fine. How are you? Very, very well. Thanks. So you, um, you sent me some very interesting links. What on earth is going on down there? Oh, um, well, basically, uh, there's a red tie in Latin America. It would sound like an exaggeration, but um, these characters, these very colorful characters that are becoming presidents are uh, deeply inspired by Karl Marx or Keynes or even Polanyi. And these yep. thinkers, of course, are a very uh, dangerous uh, uh, thing to be inspired on. Yeah, I think technically they'd be called banditos. Is that not uh, is that not correct? <laughs> right, right. And um, of course, they are trying to to overthrow what they see as neoliberalism, which is uh, right. Uh, of course, we all know it's a mixed economy, but they see it as too liberal, which is uh, kind of uh, ironic. Now, there's something which maybe you know more about. I hope you know more about than I do, since my knowledge of it is fairly limited. But there seems to be a program that's been going on throughout Latin America and in other countries since the um, uh, about the 1980s, sort of early to mid-1980s. And it has to do with uh, the IMF and currency support and a slashing of the public sector, which always seems to translate into cutting essential services without alternatives like education and so on, which seems to be bad for the economy. Do you know much? And that, of course, is arousing a lot of popular resentment. And people say, well... If enslavement to foreign financial interests is one option, uh, then we don't want to be a banana republic anymore supplying, uh, you know, the materials for uh, the, uh, the, uh, the gringos. Right. What is going on with that? Do you know much about the history of that? What is the IMF doing and what's – is there any uh, market uh, stuff behind it? Because it just seems to be like a pretty good old real, uh, sort of pillage of the economy. Right. Well, you have uh, a, a, a very interesting phenomenon that has uh, at least two heads. Uh, let's picture just a simple piece of uh, land uh, which a state uh, takes from you and basically this, this piece of land has the only lake so you have the, the fishing uh, confiscated by the state and then um, this neoliberalism or, or supposed slash uh, of, of the state functions uh, just comes in name because uh, the land is not given back to the community People cannot own or uh, in, uh, just uh, start enterprises or companies inside the, the, the land or the piece of land. But um, at the same time, um, the state is not, is not operating um, the, or, or using or making use of the resource. So um, right. the thing is um, you have economies that... Uh, uh, have uh, stopped depending on the state, but the state isn't uh, doing the things uh, it used to do in the past, as well as it doesn't let entrepreneurs enter that activity. So it happens with education, with health, it happens with the so-called uh, utilities or, or, or public services that include these basic uh, uh, products. And the other thing is, of course, a system of international mercantilism sponsored by the IMF and um, that has been going on uh, since 1948, uh, that the Latin American countries can really feel in, in their uh, daily life because uh, all the IMF does and the World Bank uh, uh, basically uh, do uh, together is to ask for more taxes or for more efficient ways of, of uh, collecting taxes such as the value-added tax instead of uh, the income tax or maybe 
both most most countries in Latin America have both, and these kind of things that um, the United States and Europe didn't have when they uh, got out of poverty. So um, right. you have a state that doesn't let people um, do things for themselves for their lives in very uh, different aspects of them. And also, it is part of a system of international exploitation, of course, sponsored by uh, the big banks and financial companies that uh, are very happy that we uh, it went out of the gold uh, of, the, of the gold standard sixty years ago. Right. So the and that's great. I really appreciate that. Good, good clarity. So the the pattern, as I see it, and tell me what's right and wrong about this view is that you kind of had a wave of post-war socialism where in a lot of the Latin American countries, uh, the governments would nationalize a whole bunch of stuff. And what that caused, of course, was economic collapse, either quickly or slowly, and then they tried to combat that with uh, borrowing from other countries, uh, governments from printing fiat currency. And uh, what happened then was that they kind of ran out of, they, they grabbed all the loot they could, and they tried printing all the money they could, and then you get this Argentinian-style inflation. And so they have to go to the IMF, and then the IMF says, well, we'll bail you out, but you have to sell everything off, or a lot of stuff off that you've nationalized. But of course, if you say, like, you and I are fishermen on a lake, and the government nationalizes the lake, when the IMF comes along, it's not like we get a chance to bid on that, or it's not like we get the lake back. It just gets sold off to other interests, usually politically connected. Is that fair? Totally true, uh, and of course you get monopolies and uh, oligopolies uh, along the way. And um, it's, right. this is very interesting because um, the progressive era in the United States uh, was uh, happening along the 1910s and 20s. But at the same time, Latin America was being subverted too. Um, schools stopped teaching ethics and, and basic civic um, um, you know, topics. Uh, because yeah. they uh, tended to be uh, libertarian or, or classic liberal leaning, uh, of course, because if you respect other people's rights, you end up in a, in a free society, uh, no matter what. Uh, so uh, this was very uh, troublesome for the socialists, and they took over education, basically, in our countries. And so it took uh, around uh, 40 years of this uh, indoctrination process for it to really translate into a, a government uh, program uh, carried on ironically by the social democrats because they were more palatable for, for the masses here and for the elites. And the elites were uh, just uh, put against the wall by these uh, socialist uh, ideas uh, because uh, they were called reactionaries if they didn't think in terms, in, in terms of process equaling progressivity or equaling progressive policies. And so um, in the 60s and 70s, we already tried uh, nationalizing industries, we already tried high taxes, we already tried uh, galloping inflation, we already tried uh, closing uh, our countries uh, to, to protect uh, uh, so-called vital interests uh, from, from imports. And uh, all that didn't work. It just made us uh, more paternalistic and more Fixed on the idea of the state as a the state as a, a big father or mother to to us all. Right, right. Of course, of course. So, so then when the economy begins to really collapse, the IMF comes in and says, "We'll bail you out, but you have to follow these rules." And of course, when the government cuts spending, it's not like they cut the spending 
that is touching the higher classes, right? It always and they always end up cutting the spending that touches the lower classes, right? So, uh, in in some of the Latin American countries, there's been there was a twenty year decline in the standard of, of living for the average person, right? After forty years of fairly significant progress. Uh, there was a decline, and I think, if I understand it rightly, the average person in South America thinks that capitalism has caused the problem. Right, that's totally true. And why is that? Why do people think that? Because uh, the IMF, of course, and the United States, who sponsor these uh, statist uh, policies, uh, represent the West and represent uh, capitalism in the eyes of people here. So uh, if you lower your standard because the state confiscated some social activity or function like education or health or the other uh, services or social services, but then uh, it doesn't give it to you back uh, in terms of production. It only cuts it from the budget to pay external debt, which of course is part of the, of the international program of the IMF. Um, people will resent that, and that, uh, of course, um, makes uh, presidents like uh, George W. Bush um, the best friends of uh, characters like Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro, ironically. Sure, of course. So at least he came in and said uh, he could smell El Diablo in the room. Right. Very Catholic imagery. Right. Now, it's also, of course, not the first time by many centuries that South America has been pillaged in one form or another by the imperialists uh, in Europe and, and North America. How much of the wealth is flowing out of the countries uh, in South America at the moment? Uh, because it's got to be quite a bit in the form of interest payments, in the form of uh, the transfer of property to uh, non-domestic uh, concerns. Is there quite a lot of outflow of capital to, to deal with all of these debts that have been accrued? Without counting or accounting for uh, opportunity costs, you could easily say it uh, is... Uh, over 30% of, uh, of our production. Uh, because most people make, uh, well, you know, these growing economies or undeveloped economies as they are, uh, are known, uh, grow faster than, than those of the developed countries. Just as, uh, sure. as an example, uh, Microsoft pays a dividend of 8% if I, I have the, the, cor the, the correct, uh, uh, the correct uh, figure. figure. And um, Supermaxi or Pronaca in Ecuador pay uh, 30 to 38 percent a year. Wow. So uh, why isn't money flowing to our countries? And, and it's pretty clear for people that have, study, uh, have studied these, these things. Uh, basically, you don't have the set of institutions that uh, foster internal growth. You don't have uh, an inclusive economy uh, which would be based on inclusive uh, institutions, uh, 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 basically a society where people would be able to be um, owners instead of just uh, workers, uh, that would enable uh, people to think in terms of the future. And the same happens to the big uh, entrepreneurs here, or the big capitalists. Of course, uh, you can make your money grow three or four times at least uh, faster than in the United States or Europe, but uh, then again, your money is uh, probably more times uh, safer in a bank in Miami or in Switzerland. Um, especially if you right. if you made your money, as you said, uh, very very, uh, I mean, well, in a very clear way, if you made your money with connections, because th those connections can come back uh, uh, with a price or maybe tied to political favors that 
have to be paid in some way or another. Maybe uh, you will be um, you will be persecuted by by these same political interests and groups that uh, put you there in the first place. So these economies are not open. They are not open not only for, for, to competition, to internal uh, and external competition, but but also they are not open in the cultural sense. Um, we have mixed societies, not not only not, not only mixed economies, uh, in the sense that um, our countries uh, are of uh, mixed cultural and racial uh, origins, and we have not uh, ha we have not uh, made a successful transition to accepting our countries are mestizo or as neither Spanish nor Indian. We have a <clears throat> unique and different identity we should uh, acknowledge that's in term in cultural terms of course but also um without rejecting uh, the western values uh, in terms of them being uh, classic liberal or at least pluralistic right 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 the um uh there must be something that the government is doing to destabilize the internal security of capital because in the absence of government intervention or a government monopoly, there would be such an enormous profit to set up a Switzerland or Miami-style bank in the various countries within South America. There must be some interference that is preventing people from coming up with this kind of solution. Do you know of, uh, of anything? Is there some, you can't start a bank without the government or... The, the taxes are so high if you're new bankers. Is there some barrier to entry for the um, uh, to start a bank to to stabilize the problem of uh, uh, of capital instability within the country? Well, actually, the libertarian movement is fighting right now a, a very interesting battle against uh, Correa, uh, our friend of Chavez, president, um, over a, a banking regulation law. Um, basically, this character, our president Correa, um, wants to lower interest rates by by decree, by force, by the use of a law or legislation, oh. to be more precise, and uh, to make some modifications to the institution. But uh, that's, um, of course, in terms of the, of the state uh, uh, creating the environment for banking, for example. Um, it, the the least harm done would be achieved uh, by copying at least the best practices of other states. And if the private sector w was to regulate or to establish these institutions for, for banking, uh, it, it would have established long ago um, several things that uh, have come to our attention on these months. We are, we, we are on this uh, battle for, the, for this uh, law or this piece of legislation. Because, uh, as you know, Ecuador uh, is dollarized. We are into dollarization right now. We are not using a local uh, kind of currency. So uh, that is really important for the Ecuadorian people. These last six years have seen an increase of the percentage of middle class as opposed to uh, poor people. And um, we have never had uh, better standards. So uh, one thing that, that uh, really caught our attention was that uh, there's no um, bankruptcy laws in Ecuador. And of course, when you study here marketing or business administration, um, you take that things for granted. But we never, uh, in the libertarian movement, uh, questioned our, why or what is the piece of, um, of, you know, of law, legislation, or at least institutional uh, framework that is needed for there to be venture capitalists. 
because here in order to for you to get a grant to get a, uh, some money on a loan uh, you would need uh, basically a collateral but uh, as we already said uh, property here is not massified it's not uh, to, uh, of um, massive uh, access to the to the people and um, we were focusing all of our efforts there that people get a title over the piece of land they have live, been living in for at least 10 20 years um, but of course and then they have some collateral right that they can use to go and create a loan to put land improvements in or build a bridge or a road or whatever right but they can't because they don't have title to the land they can't use it as collateral is that right right and that, that's one two or second you will have uh, the absence of a bankruptcy, bankruptcy law uh, and what does this do basically it allows the bankers to invest in projects not, not necessarily in something that is uh, already in place but in a project a very well conceived on project that they can study and agree on and they lend the money as that's the definition of, of venture capital because it it's venturous it's it's uh, risky but of course if you can liquidate the assets and pay back the bank and pay back the the your suppliers and pay back the workers there's no problem basically of course uh, the the venture entrepreneur would end up with a with a, a debt to the bank but that's uh, something that you can easily uh, find ways to to solve um, so that's to that second but third and most important as we said only free economies allow individuals to plan for the future so um, the banks will not uh, will not finance a venture projects simply because um, consumption uh, consumption credits uh, are cheaper easy easier to to collect if uh, something goes wrong and um, basically um, it, that was uh, that will certainly privilege consumption over investment uh, in the middle run you said sorry consumption credits was that the phrase you used yes what does that mean um, well just loans to to buy a car or to buy maybe an apartment oh, or I a see. house now once uh, what is it going on I mean this is quite remarkable to to think of up here that uh, in um, uh, in your uh, in your country, there's what uh, been uh, six or seven uh, presidents who've been thrown out over the past ten years, right. six times. Right. What uh, what's going on? Are they not paying <laughs> off the right people? Are they like what's happening? Well, uh, when, when when a libertarian here discusses the the possible uh, handling of of uh, functions that now the states uh, have confiscated uh, or, or have confiscated nowadays from us, um, of course. The case, the case of Ireland comes to mind. It had 900 years of, of stability without uh, a state, without a, a monopoly of force, of monopoly of legislation. And in the United States, uh, you had a civil war with liberty, limited government uh, in 65 years. Yeah. So that's less stable. But uh, on the other uh, side of the spec spectrum, you have Ecuador, where you change uh, the government every two or three years. So of course, I mean that seems like anarchy to me in the worst sense of the word. Right, right. That that's that's uh, total democracy, um, because <laughs> right. yeah, that's total democracy. Because if you you can um, if you can manage to to get uh, twenty people, twenty thousand people on on the street, uh, you can overthrow a president here. Uh, right, because right. too much depends on the on the presidency. 
uh, because it's a very centralized uh, state design. Um, so people have been able to throw uh, presidents every two or three years. So uh, compare that 900 years where you know the regime is so and so, in that case, Cretarchy. And um, in Ecuador, you have total democracy where people can go as a mob to the to the streets and and, and just take the Bastille uh, every now and then. Uh, of course, you cannot plan your family or your company for more than two years. Right. When in Switzerland, you can you have uh, you you can find the company or even state uh, project plans for 40 years or from 40 years ago. This this tunnel built um, inside this or across this uh, mountain, very famous recently in Switzerland, was planned 40 years ago and built recently. So that's an impossibility in Latin America. And of course, with that comes uh, high, high interest rates, uh, which is a, a common signal of, of uh, this uh, malaise, of this uh, short-term thinking. And that prohibits physically or, or tangibly uh, projects that uh, may privilege the long run. For example, um, you can build a philosophy school here, but people are not thinking probably, or most people are not thinking in terms of cultivating themselves and capitalizing um, for, say, 10, 20 years. They don't start careers that are going to pay up in 10, 20 years. Um, people that become so doctors the here are, are not... The accumulation, the accumulation of human capital for yourself, like going to an eight-year study program or something, you just don't know what it's going to be like when you graduate, so there's not that... Uh, same incentive to really invest in, like if you want to become a doctor in the U.S., you go to school for six or eight years, you do your internship. It could be 10 years before you start really making money, but you know that there's going to be a job for you. Whereas I guess in, in, in Ecuador, because of the instability, there's not that same desire or incentive to really capitalize yourself. Right. And so, uh, Let's let's uh, caricaturize this. Let's make it an exaggeration. But uh, you would privilege um, going out on Friday. Uh, so um, you would turn in in, in terms of uh, or, or using the terms that uh, Professor Hans Hermann Hoppe has uh, has uh, cleverly used. Um, you will turn philosophers into drunks. That's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when uh, you you put institutional barriers to long-term thinking and planning. Now, what is, uh, and I, I apologize for this, this following stereotype, and, you know, I apologize in advance, <laughs> but my sense has always been that in the, in the sort of Latin American countries, uh, I've only visited, uh, I guess, Mexico and, and Belize and Guatemala, but uh, I get a sense that when people don't have economic opportunities, they tend to turn inwards towards, towards the church, towards the family, towards their community, and try and derive their satisfaction out of that, which is not great, but it's, you know, I guess better than a kick in the head. Uh, is that something that has changed? Because I get a sense that the same amount of cultural satisfaction that you can get absent political opportunities, it's not quite as rich as it used to be. Right. Um, one example, because this is a really interesting topic. Thank you, Stefan. Um, why? Because uh, people here think that if they adopt um, liberal economic policies, they will become um, cold or, 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 you know, like um, 
workaholics, workaholics like in Japan or the United States. Yeah, yeah. That's not true. Uh, we can see the very fine examples of uh, Italy and Spain. Despite uh, all of those uh, countries' problems, uh, you can see they are both rich and very Latin. You can see Spanish people that end in, in the summer, they end the, the, the days work with uh, uh, like around six or seven with, with some friends and they go to a bar and have some beers or wine and they make a lot of social life uh, for at least two or three hours a day. So um, sure. I think the cultural character uh, will not change and that, that's a thing that uh, worries a lot uh, the people here. Um, another thing which is important is that uh, of course and totally related to your question that um, people here uh, don't establish impersonal institutions. Of course, that the, that's the definition of an institution to begin with. Um, they don't establish institutions because it's all about the people and people relations. Because you don't trust uh, one another. It's it's really um, graphic to see that Ecuadorians, in particular, are well. We are a country of migrants. Uh, two or three million of. of uh, of our people have gone out of the country since uh, this IMF-sponsored crisis have hit the, the region and our country, particularly in 1999. Um, what's, the, what's the thing with this? Ecuadorians go out and uh, they don't trust other Ecuadorians. They make restaurants and uh, projects and any kind of commercial activities they engage with, uh, in uh, with they do them with Argentinians, they do them with uh, people from Chile, from Mexico, from anywhere else, not from Ecuador. Why? Why is that? Because the distrust here is so big that, um, well, <laughs> this 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 figure will surprise you, of course, Stefan. Um, there are only eight companies um, that are on the on the on the stock. Uh, market here in, in Ecuador, in a, eight in the whole country. You said eight, eight. So that's sort of like uh, the Netherlands in 1622, right? Or something right. Like that. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that's exactly the case with the institutions and the culture, and uh, our our relation to to the Enlightenment ideas. That's that's very precise. You made a, a very uh, important comparison. We have not gone through um, the stages that other countries have, and and right. and and then. Uh, since you don't have these institutions that, of course, need to be impersonal and they need to be called and they need to be judgmental, that's that's a problem. Uh, people in Ecuador uh, tend to trust then uh, their partners, their families, their friends, and their couples, their romantic uh, uh, couples, uh, in order to do business, because the institutions depend so much on the names that are behind them, and and, and it's really interesting. When you see a bank or you see a restaurant or you see a, say, a, a club, a disco, like, um, people immediately ask uh, who's the owner. And uh, it's really interesting because, of course, some of us who went to college, like, of course, 3% of the country, 2 or 3% of the country, um, are, are accustomed to thinking in terms of institutions, ideas, standards, uh, brands, etc. But most people here won't go for that. They just ask who's the owner. That establishes right. the <laughs> the credibility of the of the place. If they're going to be nice to you, if it's going to be a safe place, if they, uh, there's going to be anything weird going on on the disco or the bar or the restaurant, 
uh, you know, if, if some politician owns the 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 restaurant, that you will find yourself uh, around politicians if you go. So it's uh, you know the the Italian families that created the mafias in uh, in the beginnings of the 20th century um, just lived kind of the the self the same situation. Basically, they trust only the family. They call it the family. Right, right. Of course, yeah. No. So it's, now, that's it's tribal. interesting that's, because... Uh, that's tribal thinking, uh, if you allow me the, the harshness of the, of the term. Yeah, no, that's quite right. But it's interesting, and I, I find this to be very common uh, in people's thinking with regards to society and the government, because you say the Ecuadorians don't like institutions. And, you know, I mean, in some ways I can understand that. You have to get that bit of a – you have to get a bit of Protestant salt in the wound of vanity to get the love for institutions. But the weird thing that I always find, and maybe you can explain this from the Ecuadorian perspective, is if you don't like institutions, why is it that everybody thinks the government is the solution? I mean, isn't the government, <laughs> the, government the biggest institution of all? Right. And but you say they were like a mother or a father. Is that how it's viewed? Well, there's a, there's a phrase I really love. Uh, it says basically that uh, right-wingers or people on the right uh, want the state to be our father. Um, people on the left want our, the state to be our mother. And right. we libertarians want to be treated as adults. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so good. libertarian yeah. ideas, classic liberal ideas, enlightenment ideas have not really um, reached our cultures. They have not uh, made a, a deep transformation if people just change the name of the father from church or the Catholic Church to the state and then to the leftist state, we have not um, really changed anything. We just we're just changing the cover or the of the or the mask. Uh, but the emperor still has no clothes. People right. You, you take off the the hat of the pope and you put on the the uh, the suit of the politician, and it's the same kind of thing. Yes, right? and and it's the same need of the people to have a father, to have a political leader, to tell them what to do, what is forgiven, what is forbidden, what is allowed. Now, do you think the uh, the cultural side of Ecuador, because one of the things, everyone thinks that the Enlightenment is about, you know, the free markets and the rational individual, and it is, of course, but a lot of what people forget about, particularly in the U.S., is the degree to which the Enlightenment was pretty savage on organized religion. Uh, do you see any kind of trend... Uh, in that where you have a skepticism towards organized religion and a skepticism towards religious concepts in general, or is that still a ways off? Well, of course, our parents are still alive. Uh, <laughs> mine, <laughs> mine weren't especially religious. They, they have um, taken me to church uh, at most five times in my whole life. I'm 31 year, years old. But my, my generation and, and the people that are 10 years uh, uh, younger than me, uh, they don't go to church. Like, at least, or, or at most, 5% uh, of, uh, of these young people, and my generation included, uh, go to church. So I see a very secular, uh, interesting secularizing uh, trend in our culture. Uh, but that, of course, can be taken by socialists uh, as easily, or even more easily, because they work with our money in the form of taxes, um, than by liberal and libertarian-minded uh, people. So it's all about... Uh, that's the irony of of, of uh, in the, the Enlightenment leaders. They were teaching us how to uh, stop depending on them. That's the definition of an Enlightenment right. uh, cultural right. leader. And yeah. and we need that. We need people that teaches uh, that that teach people 
um, that they don't need anybody to lead them, at least in political terms. They should be really now, skeptical there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm really fascinated by the cultural side of these kinds of things. Um, to me, it sort of seems that when people end up as adults continuing to look for someone to tell them what to do, that's got to be how they were raised, whether that's by the parents or the, the priests or by the teachers. Is there something in the way that children are raised that doesn't sort of set them on their own two feet to think independently? I mean, I mean, you went to school there, you grew up in that cultural environment. How are children treated? Are they at all encouraged to think for themselves, to question things, or is it very much, you know, be seen and not heard, or, or obedience is, is key? Well, you are taught here that you have to respect uh, your elders, no matter what. They cannot be wrong. You, you don't have to criticize them, or you can't. Uh, that's my grandmother's generation. My parents' generation was far more often. Of course, they lived through the 60s and the 70s uh, with all the influence from outside, but we're talking about higher middle class or high class. Um, most of the people here of the middle or the lower middle classes or the lower classes didn't have that contact with uh, with the rest of the world. And they are repeating these patterns that uh, are not healthy. Uh, they have been repeating them for at, at least 500 years, at least. Um, and this is very interesting. People here have adopted Quechua uh, or Quechua in Peru uh, as the the indigenous language that they need to um, recuperate or, or revive in as a way to fend off uh, the perverse effects of the system of globalization. Um, but of course, that's the language of the Incas, who were here only 40 years uh, in an invasion or, a, of course, a conquest. Uh, but before that, uh, you, could, you could find in Ecuador 7,000 years uh, of very interesting civilizations, stateless civilizations, uh, com uh, commerce-oriented or, or, uh, civilizations. And um, so my, my, my bet is that before that, we didn't have a, uh, as much paternalism as before the Incas came. But then the Incas came for four years. Of course, they, of course they, um, they followed the Inca, the, the, the prince or, or the king. That was the uh, the son of the of the son, um, totally uh, with total devotion, and you had a really centralized uh, economy and culture and, and and religion, of course, because you didn't have separation of state and religion. Um, after that, of course, uh, the Spanish came, and uh, our culture was uh, uh, then overdosed with uh, paternalism because um, right. you were taught again the the machoistic and um, classist uh, trends that uh, are still with us today. So it's really interesting uh, going, going, just focusing uh, at the moment on the family, how um, we are educated. Um, I'm not going to include myself uh, right now, but I can see how uh, most families in Ecuador uh, are are being educated and um, young people are taught to respect their elders uh, no matter what uh, the boys need to be macho and don't cry and uh, they should be the, the you know the caretakers in terms of, of uh, financial security for the home uh, women should should uh, help their brothers and girls uh, should help their brothers clean their rooms if they don't do so uh, cook for them etc and men are always right, 
and uh, it's a really sorry. Can I interrupt you for just of a course. sec? I'm just I'm just I'm making a list for my wife. Uh, so, <laughs> okay, I think I've got it. Please, uh, go ahead. I'll, I'll okay. And uh, I think we can become honorary Ecuadorians. Anyway, <laughs> and uh, Ecuador is really open to to people from all all sides of all parts of the world. Um, but of course, this is the the internal culture, and uh, that uh, figure of of the father as severe as a punisher, and that figure of the mother as a caretaker, tender, and uh, forgiving no matter what, uh, have mixed themselves um, in the figure of, of these uh, centralized institutions, first the state, no, first the church and then the state, uh, I'm sorry. Um, and of course, um, the cultural um, scenario is really set for, for paternalistic trends here. So it's really not I'm sorry surprising. To but it, uh, as you as you were talking, I just got a sense, of course, and it's not particularly original. But the the father is sort of modeled on the Old Testament God, and the mother is sort of modeled on the Virgin Mary, right? Right, totally right. Right. And um, of course, you have these um, interesting uh, dynamics, or social dynamics, or, or personal dynamics here, um, that people like Esteban Lasso, the uh, Hayekian. Uh, libertarian social psychologists have studied um, even in the in the couple in the in the you know the romantic um, couple you can find these uh, trends at work um, men should not uh, express their feelings and women should forgive them uh, even if they are unfaithful um, huh. girls set their eyes on the bad boy and um, of course, they try to render that bad boy into submission. And uh, the 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 guys here, the boys, need to play the bad boy until they right. are uh, so, uh, rendered into submission or, or appear too. So um, it's a it's a really perverse dynamic. If you're a a good guy, if you you're not uh, ugly, you have a whatever attributes girls are looking for, um, you need this aspect of, of feeding them bad because uh, there's some masochistic trend, <laughs> if you, if you right. allow me, um, going on here, uh, which goes in the same way with the presidents. That's why we overthrow presidents every two or three years. Ecuador is fascinating. Oh, because that they're bad boys who can't be reformed, right? Right. They didn't comply. <laughs> they, they were not put into submission by, by society. And if they go their, their way, you just uh, change them. So people want a, a mix of a punisher, but also someone that can be manipulated or, or molded into uh, some sort of, of mixture of, uh, you know, Fidel Castro with... Uh, with Rousseau and Robespierre, because um, this is a really interesting case. Uh, Ecuador is the country with, uh, it doubles the next country in sympathies for Fidel Castro and, and uh, Hugo Chavez. This is the only country that in the 90s never did any uh, privatization, any reform, any uh, deregulation efforts, any whatsoever. The only thing that the Ecuadorian economy has that's been improving our lives or allowing us to improve our lives, which is a more precise way of putting it, is dollarization, uh, a healthy currency. Right, right, right. Well, it's interesting, I was just, just to go back for a second, you were talking about how 
the women see the bad boys that need to be reformed. That also, to me, has religious overtones in that the women treat the men the same way that the church treats its idea of the human soul, sort of innately bad, but it can be saved with enough love and devotion and so on. So it seems like there's a flow through almost from the from the baptismal well through to the highest office of the same kinds of uh, views of human nature. Right, and you need to, to put your animal uh, part or your animal aspects into submission the same way that women who are more spiritual and sensitive and, and tender here in our, in our Latin view, the woman uh, represents all that, it has to, uh, to render into submission the man who is, right. of course, um, more animal, more more uh, instinct-oriented, more uh, full of appetites, or right, animal right, appetites. Right. So it's a, a very um, castrating, if you allow me the term, castrating view of, sure. of, human, of human beings. It's a, it's a very simple philosophical problem. If you see human beings as, as entities that are fragmented with parts that are, that are in tension and that are competing with each other, this animal part with this spiritual part, and who's going to win? Instead of being seeing human beings as as whole beings, as as uh, individuals that um, can clearly have uh, um, instincts and intuitions and and the other uh, these forces that may conflict at sometimes, but uh, just as a single um, entity that um, can be happy, that uh, has no uh, moral obli obligation to to comply with others' needs. Um, this, this is a really interesting uh, text I found uh, uh, from a pamphlet by Ayn Rand or some, some speech she gave. Uh, she was saying that altruism, basically this uh, idea that you have to uh, give your life for others or give your life goals are, and, and your happiness uh, for others' uh, sake, um, is only a tool and I was just thinking about that when I found the, 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 the speech by Ayn Rand, um, is only a tool to uh, make you comply with some other's wishes. It was the church first and now it's the state. Uh, because they have taught you that thinking about your own goals, what do you want, what do you really want in life, what do you really want to be, uh, in terms of what do you want to study instead of being a doctor or, or a lawyer. As your father said, you can be a graphic designer or you can be a transvestite dancer, whatever. Um, <laughs> um, but you don't ask these questions, or if you do, you become, uh, you know, a rebel, and um, families here um, will lament that uh, you are not following your father's steps, and so and so. Right, no, it's, it's interesting, and I, I certainly do agree with you that if a culture has a view that human nature is fundamentally broken and needs to be controlled and restrained, then it is very, very hard to escape the general consequence of a dictatorial government or a dictatorial church. Uh, there has to be something fundamentally broken in a human soul if you're never going to accept that it grows up and is self-sufficient and can be happy in and of itself. You are always going to need to put it in a cage or put it on a leash like a wild dog or something. So... Uh, you need a benevolent view of human nature, I think, in order, in the culture, and a, a general positive view of human efficacy, if you're going to have a free society, and that's part of the uh, of the journey that 
uh, very few cultures have seem to have made it through yet. Right. And a, a, a really interesting case in our region is Argentina. Uh, contrary to the to the now common view that Chile is the most uh, liberal society in Latin America, uh, Chile is actually a very conservative uh, country. They just uh, approved of abortion laws, or the the the, the fact that you could have a, a legal um, um, divorce. I mean, um, divorce, not abortion. Uh, abortion is very far away from from Chile's standard. Oh yeah. Um, divorce was approved like four years ago. Four years ago. Huh. In Ecuador, you have uh, you have it since the 30s, 1930s. Right. So uh, right. Chile is really conservative for the region. Uh, but Argentina is the country I was uh, I was uh, getting to uh, because they were in, inspired by Juan Bautista, Juan Bautista Alberti in the uh, 18th, uh, 19, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in the 1800s. Um, they wrote this uh, liberty-oriented uh, constitution, uh, really famous and inspired by both uh, Magna Carta and the American constitutions. Um, and Alberti wrote it uh, with all these other uh, liberty-minded thinkers in Argentina in 1853. And um, since then, Argentina started growing culturally and uh, economically uh, in an amazing way. It's very much so that um, people and workers from Switzerland, Germany, Italy, and Spain uh, went to Argentina because wages were very much higher than in, in their countries. Um, they had a comparable uh, per capita of, of cars at the, at the turn of the, of the century of cars, of uh, telephone lines or telegraph lines, of uh, railroads, etc., uh, to the United States or to Australia, who are, which are the, the the most typical countries to compare Argentina with. Uh, Argentina was in the in the first world. Argentina had uh, a capital city that uh, rivaled uh, Paris and New York and London in terms of fashion and uh, cultural trends. It was a really vibrant city, and um, what happened in the 1910s and 1920s, of course, the socialists of different sorts, uh, national socialists uh, in, 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 uh, in their first stages, uh, but, also, but of course, in general, these uh, German thinkers that allowed for the rise of national socialism, and uh, Marcusians and Gramscians and Marxists, of course, of different uh, types, Stalinists and, and Trotskyists, etc., took over the universities. So they took the, basically the heart or soul of, uh, of Argentina. And um, with that, they started controlling how people felt uh, about that development uh, degree they had achieved, how they felt about those uh, economic freedoms they had, how they felt about their, those civil liberties they had. And um, of course, um, they made them suspicious of, of freedom and of um, human nature, because that's what it boils down to as we we already established. And um, in the 19, 1930s, uh, Juan Domingo Perón, uh, of course, came uh, as the embodiment of that new, really old, in, in fact, old ideas uh, of paternalism, statism, and, uh, and this basically government uh, managing cultural and uh, economic affairs of society. And Argentina started then in the 1930s. Uh, very fast decay. It's the only country that we have known to uh, go back again to the third world, and right. um, that's that's uh, really really a, 
a shame, a pity, because um, it was a really interesting case that demonstrated that it was not a racial thing or a, even a cultural thing, but uh, with some uh, fine leaders, uh, you could really change the culture, the way people see each other, see themselves, and with some uh, really basic institutions that the that constitution established uh, and letting people to be free, um, yeah. letting people be free, uh, you could really have some very interesting cultural and material results. So uh, Argentina until now um, has has been becoming poorer every decade, with every passing right. decade. And, um, it's really, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's really interesting, I think, um, uh, when, you, when you say the, the, the Ecuadorians don't trust the other Ecuadorians and so on, or they don't trust institutions. The one thing that's terrible at an emotional level when governments control uh, a country is that culture doesn't get challenged. Culture doesn't get challenged by profit and self-interest. So people would learn to trust other people more if there was more profit in it. And people would learn to trust institutions more if there was more profit in it. But because the government controls it all and there's no profit in these things, culture stagnates in a terrible kind of way. And I think that's that makes people's thinking get really circular and they stop looking for creative new solutions to things. Right. And I do find that, that um, South America is one of the great tragedies, I think, of the 20th century. One of the greatest tragedies because, uh, you know, I mean, Japan never had a chance and China never had a chance in the early part of the 20th century. Um, but uh, And Russia, not really. Right? Right. But, but South America was, was on its way. Liberal democracy, a small government... Uh, the establishment of property rights, free flows of capital, low taxation, uh, a, a popular Western language. I mean, it was really on its way in a way that Africa never was. I mean, Africa is a total basket case, but right. Africa was never on its way. But South America had this it's, – it's like three lost generations of people who could have had unbelievably different lives if different decisions had been made, if more people had fought for classical liberal or free ideas – but and so to me, that's just something very, very sad because there's such, you know, there's such opportunity that that was not realized because of these terrible ideas. Right, and that's where we come back to the beginning of our of our talk, um, where uh, we can ask ourselves why did Latin American leaders be, uh, start becoming more uh, influenced by French ideas and German ideas. Uh, especially the socialist ones uh, and the social democrat ones of uh, of right or, or left, it doesn't matter. Um, instead of being inspired by these experiments in freedom that they could find in the, uh, up north, the United States yeah. and Canada are really interesting, uh, and they are American. So if you if you have any sense of of continental uh, sovereignty, uh, as as we claim we do, uh, we should be copying the United States and Canada, not. France or Germany or or right. <laughs> Russia or Stalin's Russia, but um, what happened here? I think that um, imperial that the imperial adventures of the United States here uh, have discredited uh, um, classical liberalism and libertarianism uh, or capitalism, to be sure, uh, of course, um, in the region, and that's that's uh, incredible that. People, I think, uh, I, sorry, I, I agree with that. I think it's a real shame when people mistake a state system for a, a ethical or, or a property rights philosophy. I think the other thing that happened too was that uh, it was because South America didn't have as strong and as long a tradition from the, as you could say, if really from the sort of 16th century 
to the 19th century is a couple of hundred years of pretty intense approach to individual rights. Right. Because it didn't have the momentum of the United States, it was easier to turn on a dime towards some other thing. It's taken longer for the United States to become more socialist right. because it had more momentum. But I think South America didn't have that same cultural momentum. It could go either way because it didn't have that sort of inertia. Let me suggest another term for, for momentum. Cultural capital. Ah, yes, very good. The United like States have, have been building that cultural capital Of course, in Europe before and then they went to the United States, the people that made the United States. And of course, people in Argentina already had that good background. But of course, uh, they didn't try freedom for so long, for as long as the United States. It was um, 60 years as, as opposed to, say, 150. So when uh, the socialist ideas came, you didn't have as much uh, cultural capital to resist these bad ideas or... Or, or ideas that really uh, damaged yourself really visibly. Uh, you could be persuaded that you're, you were becoming wrong or you, you were uh, becoming poorer or, um, or your societies were becoming, uh, I don't know, uh, more um, conflictive because of a variety of, uh, of, of reasons. It's really important that, that we have in mind that um, it's not the things that speak for themselves. It's who interpret, uh, teaches us how to interpret reality, uh, mm. who has the, the, the pan by the handle. So um, Argentina is, is of course a, a, a true case of this. And of course, what happened in, in Latin America um, was happening in Spain at the same time. Spain was closing itself from the rest of Europe. It isolated itself basically the same 500 years from Europe. And it, it of course, uh, had a great cost in terms of cultural capital not being built in Spain. Or in other terms, they didn't evolve um, to, to the Western mentality of skepticism, science, reason, freedom that uh, other peoples in Europe did. That's Portugal, too, of course, and Greece and uh, other countries, Albania, etc. Spain, what, Spain went through 400 years of a bad economy after pillaging all the gold from South America, right? right? And that, 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 that must have uh, taught them that, or, 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 yeah, taught them that uh, gold is not <laughs> wealth, <laughs> that money right. is not wealth, it's production. But um, what happens with Spain is, uh, we recently went last year, three, three guys from Ecuador, including me, uh, went to Madrid, Spain, And uh, we were talking to this uh, Spanish uh, economics uh, teacher. You might uh, have heard of him. It's, uh, his name is Jesus Huerta de Soto. He's a very uh, renowned uh, Austrian economist. Uh, and he was telling us that Spain did in 10 years uh, under President Aznar, who liberalized the economy and, and uh, opened, the, uh, opened up Spain to, to the rest of Europe, what they didn't do in the past uh, 400, 500 years. And of course, he told us something really important. He said, uh, you people in Latin America are so fixed with the idea that uh, the Spanish uh, influence in, um, in Latin America is so strong uh, and that uh, makes you poor and ignorant, but of course, Spain's influence uh, or the Spanish influence in Spain is bigger uh, <laughs> is, is far bigger than in Latin America and we have right. made the jump to a developed country or to a developed state of things 
So right. uh, sometimes it's an excuse, Stefan. Uh, this this um, thing with uh, our countries not being uh, conquered or colonized by by Anglo-Saxons and them being colonized by by Spanish people. Yes, right. uh, we were colonized, or we colonized, uh, or, or our ancestors colonized um, with Spanish ideas. Uh, but that's the, the key word. There is ideas, not Spanish. Right. The, right, the thing is, right. is the legacy that the Spanish were bringing, and it was, of course, paternalistic. It was machoistic. It was uh, racist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, that's a real drag on on us. But from the cultural uh, point of view, but that's also a um, a motive or or a or a reason for for optimism. Because if Spain could do it, and Spain has the whole full load of, of Spanish influence upon Spain, of course. Uh, we can do all the changes and jump to the to the first world um, in uh, just a generation. If Ecuador started growing six or seven percent a year, with just some uh, liberalization of of the economy, with a massive distribution of property tiles, and with the free commerce with the world, um, you could become Spain uh, instead of uh, of our people going massively to Spain uh, in only 20 years, just a generation. You could be in $20,000 dollars per capita. When you think just how close everyone is to having a great life in the world, it, it drives you mad, right? Because you just know everybody is so close to having such a great life. Right. If the, if the boot would just get off our neck, we could all have such a fantastic the world, right? I always feel like we're this close to having that, but, you know, it just goes on generation after generation. Right. Listen, I'm going to stop, but I really do appreciate the chat. I just don't want to uh, overburden my podcast listeners with, uh, <laughs> with uh, you know, three hours of Latin American history. I find it fascinating, but I'm going to wait to see what uh, what the feedback is like. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to add? Is there a website you'd like to, to mention or anything else that you'd like to, to get out to the people who listen? Well, no, just thank them, thank them very much for, for listening. Uh, just to forgive me for, for my, um, you know, Ecuadorian... English <laughs> standard, oh, good. Uh, good. but uh, at the same time, just they can look up for my name in in Google. They can Google my name, uh, Juan Fernando Carpio, and they can find some articles and discussing the problems in the region from a libertarian point of view. Well, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Post too. Your name. <laughs> I'll post your name on the uh, board so that people can uh, uh, gringos like me who can't spell <laughs> very well will be able to find you as well. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.